Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. In the years before the First World War, the great European powers Britain, Germany and Russia were ruled by three cousins, George V, Wilhelm II and Nicholas II. They presided over the last years of dynastic Europe and the outbreak of one of the deadliest conflicts in history. Miranda Carter, author of The Three Emperors, presents a talk on the trio and their times in a session supported by Heartland Bank. We hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon. How lovely to see you on the first day of the three-day public program. I'm Anne O'Brien. I'm the director of the Auckland Writers Festival, and what a great start we've had to the festival and to the day, and it is set to continue, including the session we've got coming up. We're delighted to have as one of our international guests this year the wonderful Miranda Carter. She is an historian, a biographer, and a writer. In her spare time, she writes Victorian detective novels, I urge you to check them out, uh, under the moniker M.J. Carter. But, of course, she is best known for her history and her biography work under her real name, Miranda. Her first book, A Biography of Anthony Blunt, won the Royal Society of Literature Prize and the Orwell Prize and was shortlisted for multiple others, so I'm not going to list them all. But needless to say, a wonderful uh, and consummate book. And her second, The Three Emperors, is, of course, the work she's going to talk about today. So rather than stealing her thunder, I would invite you to welcome the wonderful Miranda Carter to the stage for The Three Emperors. wasn't supposed to happen yet. That was supposed to be a surprise. <laughs> but I guess all mentions of Trump at this festival have no longer become a surprise. But I promise you, Trump is relevant to this talk. But first, what I really wanted to say before that splashed on was, hello, Auckland. I've always wanted to say that. I'm delighted to see so many people. It's fantastic to have such a big audience. It's brilliant. Uh, but I'm going to get to it. My book, The Three Emperors, uh, which I wrote seven or eight years ago, is about the relationship between the men who ruled the three uh, biggest empires in Europe um, before the First World War, in those 30 years before the First World War. These men were Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, Tsar Nicholas II of all the Russias, uh, as it was called, and George V, King of Britain and Emperor of India. People often forget or don't know that these three men were first cousins, tightly connected by marriage and blood. Wilhelm's mother and George's father, Edward VII, also known as Bertie, Edward the Caresser and Prince Tum-Tum, were Queen Victoria's eldest children. The mothers of George and Nicholas were sisters, daughters of the Danish uh, king. And Wilhelm and Nicholas were tied through a series of marriages between the Russian royal family and dozens small-time German princesses over decades, in fact, centuries. In fact, Nicholas eventually married Queen Victoria's granddaughter, Alexandra of Hesse-Darmstadt, and so Queen Victoria became his grandma-in-law. Make no mistake, I'm not a real royalist. I didn't write this book because I liked the tinkle of ceremonial gold. I wrote it because I became interested in the way the relationships within what I saw as a very dysfunctional extended European royal family entangled and resonated very strangely with the political relations between their respective countries. 
and also because these three men, two of them with serious, serious amounts of power, turned out to be dinosaurs quite unfitted by temperament and education to engage with the modern world. Well, as I said, the book came out about seven years ago. He's still there. He's still there. <laughs> but it occurs to me uh, that it's not a bad moment to revisit it. This year we remember quite a lot of centenaries. It's 100 years since the Russian Revolution, since the abdication and later murder of Tsar Nicholas II. And, uh, it's 100 years since uh, New Zealand troops fought at Messines and Ypres and had their worst casualties at Passchendaele in 1917. It's 100 years since nervous, anxious George V, fearful after three years of war, uh, decided that it was time to change the family name from Saxe-Coburg-Gotha to the deeply stolid and completely fabricated Windsor, uh, making what was, in fact, an almost entirely European family with great European links into a slightly dull, stolid, inward-facing English home counties family, purely ceremonial, and at the institution we know today. Well, when I first started writing this book in the early 2000s, George W. Bush was in the White House, and he, of course, among other things, started the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, declared the war on terror, and put a lot of people in the White House uh, with close relations with oil and gas in all top government posts connected with climate change and the environment. Let me take you back a bit. He won the 2000 election by the most minuscule of margins from Al Gore. Uh, the election result rested on the crucial state of Florida, which Bush was said to have won by 500 notes, but there are votes, but there are still plenty of people who can contend that a proper recount would have shown that Gore had won that state. And what is certainly true is that Gore got over a half a million more votes overall than Bush. I wonder what that reminds you of. Well, Bush won, and that made all the difference. If Gore had won, it's hard to imagine there would have been a war in Iraq and Afghanistan, or that climate change in the US would have been so under attack during the Bush administration. At the time, Bush's win seemed to me to illustrate a very unfashionable truth about history, which was that though histori serious historians often don't like to apportion too much influence to individuals, especially when it comes to huge events like the First World War, uh, the truth is, sometimes individuals do wield an enormous influence over world events, often, unfortunately, a negative influence. Sometimes it's worth telling the history of individuals and what they do, especially when they make big mistakes. And writing about my three emperors seemed to me at the time to be a very different way and a, possibly a valid way into writing about World War I, a subject I think we all should know about, but which many people including myself, before I wrote this book, found hard to get into. Well, it is 2017, and this guy, who we didn't think would win, the American election did. Uh, and that thought that one individual can make an enormous amount of difference, and not always for the better, seems truer than ever. But there's another reason true, Trump is up there on that screen, and that is that the person in the world he most reminds me of is Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany of which more later. Well, this is a very long book. I can't tell you the whole story. I can't tell you the whole plot. And I haven't got that much time to stay, say it in. But what I thought I'd do is talk mainly about the relationship between these men and their families, and with a special emphasis on Wilhelm, because he seemed to me to be the oddest, strangest, the most interesting of all three. And I hope you'll see how strangely and closely 
these men resonated with wider forces uh, within Europe and the world and how they played their part in the lead-up to the great conflagration that became World War I. The story actually starts with an empress, not an emperor, Queen Victoria, who was grandmother to two of my emperors, as I said, and uh, grandmother-in-law to the third, Nicholas. By the 1880s, 1860s, in fact, when my emperors were growing up, Wilhelm, the eldest, was born in 1859. George was five years younger, and Nicholas a couple of years younger than that. Uh, Queen Victoria was the preeminent monarch in the whole world, not because she had much power, but because Britain had become the world's largest industrialised nation and had an enormous empire, of which, of course, New Zealand was part. Victoria had become convinced that intermarriage and close relationships between European royalty would be, should be, the means by which Europe could achieve lasting peace. I have to say, even in the 1860s, this was a theory which neither history nor personal experience of family relations gave any weight to at all. She was also absolutely convinced, and when she was convinced, nobody could convince her of anything else, that this achievement would ensure the survival of royalty in the face of the fiendish rising forces of republicanism and democracy. And so she became a compulsive, often appallingly uh, bad, uh, matchmaker for her children and 40-odd grandchildren. By the mid-1890s, her web of marriages had ensured that her family was hooked up by blood or marriage to pretty much every other royal family in Europe. And to a great extent, her offspring all believed this story, this idea of a pan-European family as well. And they all gave each other nicknames, which only the family could use. Uh, and all the nicknames end in, ended in E. Uh, so there was Willie and Eddie and Nicky and Bertie and Alecky and Minnie and Missy and Mossy and Fishy, who never, and who rather appropriately got married to Mossy and also then divorced, and a bevy of Georges. And they would all meet up at grand glittering events across Europe, dressed immaculately in a series of ever more complicated military uniforms denoting their precise status in the small, closed-off world of the European courts. The problem was that in many respects, Queen Victoria's grandchildren and great-grandchildren were entirely unprepared for the role of saviors of Europe and of the monarchy. And uh, the main reason was their upbringings. My three protagonists, it's time to leave Mr. Trump at last, you'll be glad to know, I hope. There they are. Oh, we've gone back. There we go. There they are. We have Nicholas, George and Wilhelm. Don't Nicholas and George look so extraordinarily like each other? It's really, really extraordinary. Um, they were actually rather different from each other, although Nicholas and George were temperamentally quite alike, very quiet, very shy, and neither of them ever really wanted to be a monarch. Nicholas, however, was brought up to see himself as an autocrat who had almost no controls on his power. Uh, he basically regarded the whole of Russia as his... Uh, personal backyard, his country estate, to do with as he thought fit. Whereas George, in a tradition where the expansion of democracy meant that he was king virtually without any power, was obliged to say that that was really great. Then there was Wilhelm. Wilhelm, it was fair to say, was an extrovert. He was, you can sort of tell really from the uniform, can't you? <laughs> He was noisy, he was showy, he was boastful. He loved nothing more than putting on a fabulous military uniform. In fact, he would change into a different one six times a day. And he had something in the region of 300 different military uniforms. And liked nothing better than to redesign the uh, latest uh, 
headdress for the 36 hussars or the 70 Prussian infantry. Um, and they all got, during the course of his reign, shinier and pointeder and, and more and more elaborate. Um, anyway, he loved nothing more than putting on a fabulous military uniform, marching at the head of a column of soldiers down a street full of cheering civilians, then making a speech and hearing that applause in his ears. What linked them all, as I said, was shared blood and their upbringings in the royal courts of Europe. A hundred years before, at the in the late 18th century, these places had been the centre of the European world, of innovation and culture. But by the second half of the 19th century, History had sort of passed them by. They'd become social backwaters, encrusted by tradition and etiquette, threatened by the new world of motor cars and republicanism and trades unions and middle classes and public opinion. And they wanted to have as little to do with this new world as it possibly could. So they did their best to keep, keep the new world out. And one way of doing this was the increasingly heavy-handed imposition of old arcane rules of etiquette and ever more complicated rules about status and an obsession with trivialities such as uniform and dress. The whole idea of, of the kind of pretend state of Ruritania comes from this moment, this sort of ridiculous this sort of Eastern European uh, princedom where you know, everybody has a shiny uniform and has a little moustache and a, a little uh, you know, eyepiece. And, um, uh, uh, and, uh, for example, I can give you an example. At the Berlin court, for example, where William grew up, even in the 1900s, no one was allowed to look through the monarch through glass, uh, th look at the monarch through glass, which meant that nobody could wear spectacles at court. So the court was full, I mean literally full, of short-sighted generals and governesses tripping over the furniture. <laughs> I love that picture, but I think, it, you know, there is some truth to it. Um, another example, as children, the three emperors had to learn very tedious rules of court protocol, uh, which involved things like having to stand for hours through interminable court rituals. So, for example, Nicholas and his brothers and sisters from the age of about three would have to stand for six hours every Easter as uh, their father shook hands with every single member of the, uh, of the uh, Russian court, which was thousands and thousands of people. Uh, there was another thing whereby... Um, everybody had to stop eating when the monarch stopped eating. So, uh, and if you were at the bottom of the table, if you were a child, you were unlikely to get much food. So you'd get like two or three mouthfuls and then it was all over and off you had to go. Um, and um, Nicholas II, as a child, once got so hungry that he opened up a locket he'd been given, which contained an alleged fragment of the true cross in wax and ate it all up, including the wax, and said it was immorally good. Henceforward, anything delicious the imperial children of Russia ate was described as immorally good. But the worst thing was that the courts, as I say, didn't want to admit the rest of the world. And so the children grew up in a kind of disfiguring isolation um, and under educational regimes which were completely unfitted for a modern monarch, being constantly told how special they were. Nicholas was told by the man who supervised his education that he would learn everything he needed to know about being an emperor uh, at the moment when the, quotation marks, mysterious forces released when he took the coronation oath and the crown settled upon his head, um, magically would come to rest in him. And that was regarded as sufficient preparation. And my goodness, it really wasn't enough. 
Um, after 12 years with a personal tutor, George uh, uh, V, this is as an 18-year-old, was said to be, and I'm quoting, deficient in even the most elementary subjects. He could hardly spell nor speak French or German, the absolute baseline for a royal education. And Wilhelm was a dilettante, always convinced that he knew better than anyone else, and in fact, that he knew pretty much everything about everything. Um, but most of all, perhaps, for all three emperors, uh, the, the entanglements of politics and the personal would place an absolutely terrible pressure on them. As I said before, I'm going to concentrate on Wilhelm. He's probably the least well-known of my three emperors in, in, in uh, the West and, uh, and sort of Anglo-Saxon world. But he's also the most extraordinary. And I'm going to, uh, as I said, I'm going to talk most about him. I think he's one of the great sort of tragicomic, monstrous figures of the late uh, 19th, early 20th century. And what made him that way? Well, here we go. He was the eldest son of Queen Victoria's eldest daughter, Vicky, who had married the heir to the Kingdom of Prussia. When he was 12 in 1871, Prussia managed to unite Germany into one state. And the King of Prussia... Wilhelm's German grandfather, helped considerably by uh, Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, became Emperor of Germany. As many of you will know, Wilhelm was born with a withered arm, which never grew. It's the one thing people do know about him. It was a result of a difficult delivery, which may also have left him slightly brain damaged. That would explain quite a lot about his subsequent erratic and excitable behaviour. In fact, he learned to deal with the arm pretty well. Um, but those around him, his mother, especially constantly worried that it would make people think that he wasn't up to the task of ruling. In Germany, kingship and leadership were still very, very much tied to the idea of male physical prowess and perfection. So as a child, he had all sorts of really bizarre uh, um, treatments to try and put, uh, put life back in the arm. He was given electric shocks, uh, which did no good at all, and he was put in a sort of terrible cage-like thing to stretch his arm. And at one point... Uh, they, would catch, uh, they would catch hairs, cut them open while they were still warm and put his arm in amongst the warm blood and dead entrails as if some magic, bypass some sort of magic transfusion, some sort of really medieval weird stuff, this, um, that, you know, the life of the hair would be transmuted into the arm. Of course, none of it worked. His mother, Vicky, who in many ways to us is a very sympathetic character. She was intelligent, she was well-educated, she was energetic, she was far more advanced and liberal thinking than most of her class. She wanted to mould Wilhelm into a perfect modern prince. She put him under horrendous pressure and was relentlessly critical. I have to say that her mother had been horrendously critical of her too. She also never integrated into the Prussian court, and she developed a bad habit of saying everything in Britain was better and that Germany was second-rate, and German militarism particularly was particularly unappealing and dreadful. Uh, at the German court, of course, uh, you know, at the same time, England was increasingly viewed as a, th a threatening and overbearing neighbour who sought undue influence in Germany and the person who became, came to in incarnate that was Vicky. Um, and also that Britain was getting in the way of Germany's deserved position in the world as a great power, an imperial power. This, let us just say, was quite confusing for Wilhelm. Within his family, his mother seemed to spend every waking moment criticising him and Germany. Outside in the court, everybody was fawning on him and telling him he was the second coming. Uh, and he also knew that there were lots of people like Bismarck, for example, who considered his mother dangerously liberal 
and a, a woman who should get back into that kitchen and shut up. You can almost see him being pulled in two directions. At home, he was William uh, and spoke English at court with his German grandfather. He was Wilhelm. Um, well, unsurprisingly, it all went very badly wrong. Wilhelm grew up spoilt, criticised, uh, worried over. And here he is, actually, as a child. There he is with, with uh, Vicky as a baby, then a young man look, trying to look studious. And then there's this terrible little kilt picture. Uh, Queen Victoria sent him a kilt to wear, which he apparently loved, although one day he went down to the beach uh, with an English gentleman, had a tantrum and tried to throw the sporran and the dagger at the gentleman, who then turned him over on his bottom and smacked him. But I don't think he was ever smacked again after that. Anyway, so here he is, a young man, as you can see. Once again, the picture of sort of German militarism. He actually trained himself to sort of school his face into this sort of martial expression. And he uh, uh, used a special pomade every day to twirl his moustache into a perfect W. Uh, his, his, his uh, you know, in fact, his 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 moustache became something that you know all across Europe, men, you know, wanted to have a Wilhelm uh, moustache. Um, as I say, when he was 18, it had all gone wrong. Uh, he there was a huge and massive rebellious reaction against his mother, and he ran as far away as he could from her. Joined the Prussian army and became a kind of caricature Prussian officer, anti-English, anti-Semitic, deeply conservative, exaggeratedly macho, obsessed with those uniforms. This is what Wilhelm was like as an adult, and I'm just gonna just slip in there. Just think about Trump. He was a very uncomfortable combination of boisterous, boastful, extrovert, and easily dented depressive. Behind whole claws, he was given to hysterical tantrums. He was unable to hear criticism or contradiction of any kind. He never really grew up. He got stuck in permanent adolescence. He was incapable of learning and maturing. He had the attention span of a gnat, and he was very dangerously quick to take offense. He couldn't even, as I said, he couldn't bear the hint of criticism and would turn on anyone uh, whom he felt didn't sufficiently approve or appreciate him. He surrounded himself with people who agreed with him and told him what he wanted to hear. He was desperate to be adored constantly. He liked to suggest he was an expert on everything. He was unable to distinguish between trivialities and priorities. He tended to listen to the last person he talked to. He loved nothing more than to stand up in front of a crowd and make a speech and go worryingly off-piste, saying things like that completely terrified the rest of Europe. He would demand that Germany be given its place in the sun, uh, claim that he was going to make Germany great or greater. Uh, and he often seemed quite unable to distinguish between his version of reality and reality itself. He told lies and then denied the more said they didn't matter. Uh, it's been speculated that Wilhelm might have had narcissistic personality disorder. <laughs> I think it's probably true. When you look at the symptoms, they match up. People with NPD come across as conceited, boastful, pretentious. They tend to monopolize conversations. They have an exaggerated sense of self-importance. They expect to be recognized as superior, even without achievements that warrant it. They, they, they exaggerate their achievements and talents. They're preoccupied with fantasies about success, power, brilliance, beauty, or perfect mate. They believe they're superior and can only be understood by equally special people. They need constant admiration. They have a sense of entitlement. Uh, they expect special favors. They 
take advantage of others to, to get what they want. They see other people as purely functional. Um, uh, they, uh, they have an inability or unwillingness to recognize the needs of others. They're envious of others, and they're constantly arrogant and haughty. Well, I think Willingham basically exhibited all these characteristics. The thing is, if you're brought up as the emperor of Germany, you probably do feel that you're pretty much entitled to the whole world. You may well think you're all that. Is this a narcissistic personality disorder? Or what happens in a society where some people are, are permitted to grow up thinking they own the world? And the awful thing is they sort of do. However, what makes me and others think that Wilhelm did have NTPD because the classic sufferer has problem, ha trouble handling uh, that criticism and they are very, very deeply insecure underneath. And the problem is that when reality and their insecurity come together, everything goes really badly wrong and that's when it becomes a disorder. And at crucial moments, Wilhelm's facade would totally crumble when something went badly wrong and it did a lot of the time and the world was not as he wanted it to be, or he just simply couldn't maintain the fiction that it was as he wanted it to be. He would fall into a terrible de depression. He would run, fall on the carpet, chew it, cry, and then retire to his room for a few weeks and recalibrate his sense of unreality. And the other way he dealt with it was by constantly moving around the country. He, the, the thing that made him feel best was putting on that uniform and marching into another town where people would clap him external, you know, a need for constant external pause. Um, underneath, the underneath the boisterous facade, uh, the real edifice uh, of his character couldn't, couldn't sustain the fantasy of his own wonderfulness. I have to say that at the time, nobody outside the court, his entourage, his ministers and his family knew about this. Uh, he seemed... Uh, for a long time to Europe, to be this enormously shiny, boisterous, brilliant figure. Um, and in Germany, he did solicit a huge amount of popularity, particularly among the lower middle class and the right-wing aristocracy. Some of this doesn't sound unlike Donald Trump. The refusal to see reality, the instance of dismissing things you don't want to hear as lies, the telling of lies and behaving as if they don't matter, that hypersensitivity to criticism. We should note, however, that the psychologist uh, who worked out the current criteria for NPD, Dr. Alan Francis, says he doesn't think Trump has it, although he certainly is what he calls a world-class narcissist because he seems to exhibit uh, none of the distress uh, which turns these symptoms into a mental disorder. In other words, one could say that, that Trump has what all narcissists really want, which is permanent delusions of grandeur. <laughs> well, back to Wilhelm. Perhaps unsurprisingly, because of the confusion with his upbringing, Wilhelm's feelings about Britain were extremely complicated. He felt an almost slavish admiration for things British, its navy, its ruling class, the lifestyle of its rich aristocracy, its empire, and his grandmother. He simply couldn't shake that off. But at the same time, he felt a deep-seated sense of inadequacy towards Britain and his British relations. He felt they never quite loved him enough never paid him quite enough attention. And this inflamed that close-to-the-surface feeling of resentment and anger. He veered constantly between longing to be getting on with them and wanting to humiliate and squash them. In particular, these feelings were focused on his uncle, Edward, the future Edward VII. Wilhelm was really jealous of Edward, who was an enormously popular figure in Europe. But at the same time, he longed to get his approval 
A disgruntled German courtier wrote that he fluttered round fat Edward like a leaf in the wind round a tower. I'm going to give you an early instance of Wilhelm's dangerous spite, sense of grievance and unpredictability. Um, it's something that would then be repeated over and over again over the next 30 years. As Prince of Prussia in 1887, a year before he became the Kaiser, he wrote some secret letters to the Russian Tsar, who he'd met once, telling him that his uncle Edward, the English uncle, he called him, had begun a conspiracy to start a war against Russia. This was fantastically inflammatory. Britain and Russia at the time were mortal enemies. He did this without telling anybody. Um, nobody knew about it. Uh, at the same time, in Germany, he was seen as an Anglomaniac at times. And uh, his entourage despaired of him. Uh, they thought, you know, he, 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 you know, he was going to give everything away to the British. And at the same time, again, the British Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, was genuinely worried uh, that when Wilhelm became Kaiser, as he did the following year, he would turn Germany away from Britain uh, towards Russia, and the family feeling would wreak havoc with international relations. Well, one, this is how it played out initially. Within weeks of coming to the throne in 1888, uh, after his father died of throat cancer three months into his own reign, Wilhelm and his English relations were on non-speaks. Uh, first, he went out of his way after his father's death to public hum publicly humiliate his mother. He accused her of sending state papers secretly to England. He ejected her from the palace in which his father had died hours after his father died and instituted a, a public search. Later, he would go around calling her that dumpy little person who seeks influence. And the man he sent to announce his accession to the German throne to Grandma Victoria in, in England, was famous for having hated his mother and father. Well, Queen Victoria uh, was freezingly chilly to this man. Wilhelm made a formal complaint afterwards. Queen Victoria was really not amused. She wrote a letter saying, the Queen is extremely glad to hear that General Winterfeld says he was received coldly, for that was her, she did speak in the third person, intention. It got worse. Uh, a few months later, in the autumn of 1888, Wilhelm had his uncle, Edward, publicly evicted from Vienna. Wilhelm was making his first state visit to the Austrian capital as Kaiser, and he let the Austrian authorities know that his uncle, his uncle who was there at the time, he didn't want him in the town. As reigning monarch, he had social precedence over uh, Edward, and the Viennese, falling over themselves with embarrassment, had to tell Edward to get out of town. Wilhelm had a particular gift, as I think narcissists often do, for nailing people's vulnerabilities, and Edward always thought of himself as utterly clubbable and the family peacemaker. Edward was so amazed, he actually couldn't believe that this had happened and sent Wilhelm a letter saying there must have been a misunderstanding. Wilhelm completely ignored it and later pretended he'd never received it. Edward had to leave Vienna, feeling completely humiliated. He wrote to Vicky, William's mother, very, very grumpily about my illustrious nephew and adding, the time may come quicker than he expects when he will be taught that neither Germany nor Russia will stand an autocrat at the end of the 19th century. Boy, would that turn out to be true. When Queen Victoria demanded an explanation of Wilhelm's behaviour from Bismarck, a three-page denunciation of Edward was sent to the British Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, the main thrust of which was that he had not been sufficiently reverential to his nephew. 
He hadn't treated him like an emperor. This really set the queen off. This really is too vulgar and too absurd. If he has such nations, he had notions he had better never come here. Well, the two countries' foreign ministries became immediately incredibly agitated. Things had, had to be straightened out really quickly. So they laboured to make sure that the falling out didn't have wider political consequences, and eventually the families made up to the great relief of Lord Salisbury. The main reason for this, in fact, was that Wilhelm had suddenly uh, had one of his enormous flip-flops, uh, Volt Fass, and he decided he wanted to be friends with the British, after all. The reason was probably that his mother had moved out of town for good and he suddenly felt that the shadow of monstrous mummy had gone away and he could shine uh, to his British uh, relations uh, all on his own. Um, with no sense of embarrassment at all, he invited himself to England. The Queen, advised by her Prime Minister, took a very deep breath and gritted her teeth. She really gritted them. Uh, and demanded, but demanded an apology. She said he could come, but he had to apologise about what had happened in Vienna. And what did Wilhelm do? He not only refused to apologise, he claimed he'd never asked, uh, he'd never said that Edward had to leave Vienna at all. He re-entered reality. Eventually, the British decided they had to let it pass, but Edward never quite got over it, and everyone knew Wilhelm was lying. And this, as I say, was a pattern that would be repeated over and over again, with, you know, and the political states would get higher and higher. Wilhelm, however, I just have to tell you this because I love this story, was in heaven. And he was making up to Grandma again tremendously. And he effectively got her to give him a special title. Uh, she made him an Admiral of the Royal Navy. I want you to hear Wilhelm's voice here. It's completely inimitable. Is there, are there any Germans in the house? Because I'm going to do a German accent and I apologise in advance if it sounds a bit comedy. This is what he wrote. Fancy wearing the same uniform as St. Vincent and Nelson. It is enough to make me quite giddy. I feel something like Macbeth must have felt when he suddenly received, he was suddenly received by the witches. Not, of course, that he saw the British ambassador who gave him the honour as a witch. No, you are more of a good fairy. <laughs> this... This title, Admiral, was of course an honorary title, not something you were supposed to take seriously. The crowned heads of Europe were constantly handing out medals and honours to each other, but they weren't supposed to count for anything. But when Wilhelm got his admiralship, he took it seriously and he began to inundate the Queen with unsolicited, helpful advice. And the first of them was an entire plan for the entire reorganisation of the British Navy. <laughs> you can imagine what the Admiralty did with it in the bin. Over the years, there would be other interesting suggestions during the Boer War, uh, when Germany was, in fact, uh, hugely critical of Britain. In fact, the whole of Europe was. Uh, uh, Wilhelm marched into the British ambassador's uh, bedroom one day, when the British ambassador was in pyjamas, and presented him with a plan for winning the Boer War. Um, anyway, that didn't go too far either. Um, there were, as I say, there were subsequent years of ups and downs. Wilhelm never lost his admiration for his grandmother. He always loved her. And when she was dying in 1901, he dropped everything. Um, at the time, there was a very, very important uh, anniversary going on in Berlin. Um, his aides were absolutely furious, and he dashed to England, to the Isle of Wight, to be at her deathbed. He loved to say later that the Queen dies in his arms. I'm going to say this, I'm sorry, of course, technically she died in his arm. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I can't resist it. I just can't resist it. 
but those antipathetical feelings toward Britain, those moments of genuine hatred, resonated with a rising Anglophobia within Germany at large. This really developed for complex reasons quite separate from, from Wilhelm's own. Um, Germany had began to resent Britain's swaggering assumption that it should dominate the world. Um, and that was one of the things that made it really, really dangerous, this resonance and the fact that Wilhelm had real power. But he, though he exercised it, I have to say, in a very erratic way, and of course that other thing about refusing to distinguish between fantasy and reality, and his inability to separate his personal feelings from his uh, political ones. Oh, he'd also, unfortunately, completely imbibed from his mum Queen Victoria's brilliant idea that family and personal relations could be an important force in European politics. He loved the idea of using what he called his personal diplomacy. That is, that he thought he could sort out uh, Germany's diplomatic relations by exercising what he was convinced were his very considerable powers of charm and persuasion on other monarchs. Though all too often, as you can imagine, this really went really badly wrong. His ministers soon realised that rogue, William's rogue interventions could be very, very dangerous and disruptive. They also realised he could be very easily manipulated and exploited. The best way to manage him was to humour him to his face, flatter him, and to manipulate and distract him as much as possible to get what you wanted. This meant uh, that gradually he came to surround himself with consummate flatterers and exploiters uh, rather than uh, decent policymakers. And the most famous of these was his oily, sometime Chancellor Bernard von Bülow, an extravagant ingratiator and backstabber who wrote, you cannot un have the faintest idea what I have prevented and how much of my time I must devote to restoring order where our all highest has created chaos. The other genius manipulator was Admiral von Tirpitz, who used his abilities to charm and manipulate the Kaiser to extract from him mountains of money to build up the German navy, which would become central to the arms race between Britain and Germany. That, that thing that so helped to bring about the war. Tirpitz, incidentally, like most of the German chiefs of Stark, regarded Wilhelm with derision. Uh, he said after his first meeting with Wilhelm that he did not live in the real world. Uh, so you can imagine that when Edward VII came to the throne in 1901, uh, Anglo relations, German relations began to go seriously wrong. The two men tried to get on, but they could hardly bear to be in each other's company. Look at that. They couldn't even look at each other. Uh, they really, really didn't like each other. And Wilhelm, forever confusing appearances with real power, became obsessed with the notion that Edward was deliberately working personally to encircle Germany in a web of alliances, starting with the Entente Cordiale with France and progressing eventually to Russia. Every setback to German plans he blamed on Edward. In 1905, after Germany failed to dominate a conference about partition of, of lands in Africa, uh, Wilhelm, just before he had one of his major collapses, falling on the floor and weeping and tearing the carpet, shrieked to his entourage that his fat uncle is a Satan. You can hardly believe what a Satan he is. It's a pretty extraordinary thing to say about your uncle. Edward himself uh, ended up placing himself publicly in the British camp that wanted more expenditure on warships and came to view Germany, you know, who's a man who's said to speak English with a gutter or almost German accent himself, as an explicit threat to Britain. 
over the next 20 years, Wilhelm's inability to control himself when it came to the British and his relations would lead from one instance of bad blood to another. And this was a state of affairs mirrored in his relationship with Tsar Nicholas II and Russia. We're going to turn now a little bit to the other emperors and cousins, George and Nicholas. Here they are in Denmark, where they used to meet when they were children. Uh, their mothers, the daughters of the King of Denmark, would bring them to meet their Danish grandparents. One sister, Alexandra, had married Edward. Marie married Tsar Nicholas III. The irony was the two boys became friends despite Queen Victoria, who hated Russia at the time. Russia was really from the 1830s. Uh, Britain's great rival, especially in Asia, and its ideological opposite, the great tyranny versus the great self-styled constitutionally monarchy and home of liberty and freedom of the press. Queen Victoria said Russians were horrible uh, and full of hate, and the Russian government was wicked and atrocious, and Nicholas' dad, Tsar Alexander III, was not a gentleman. And he obligingly hated her right back and said she was a pampered, sentimental, selfish old woman and nasty and interfering. As the children, but the children in Denmark had a very special time. It was the only time they spent time with royal cousins, also from Greece and Denmark, who were all the same status from them. Um, they never got to do this at home. So Denmark became a very special place for all of them. And I think George and Nicholas, especially, they, they developed a, a, a real relationship, even though they didn't see each other very often. In Denmark, they went on romps and they played practical jokes and the Russian family were allowed to walk down the street, which they were never allowed to do in Russia, ever. Uh, Nicholas's first crush was on George's, George's uh, sister, Toria. George, who was terrified of Queen Victoria, called his famously scary uh, uncle Tsar Alexander III, dear fatty. Um, and they were both quite alike, these boys, quiet, country-loving, and, and, and as adults, uncomfortable with complexity, all the ambiguities of real politique, and much preferring their domestic worlds to the public world, um, both obsessed with doing their duty. They also, as we saw, looked very, very, very much like each other. There they are in Denmark again, about 20 years later. And here they are in 1893 in George's wedding. You, you know, people kept going up. To them. This was the moment when, George, when Wilhelm, actually, Wilhelm, Nicholas came to London for George's wedding in 1893, and people kept coming up to him and congratulating him on his upcoming nuptials. He didn't like that very much, apparently. Um, it's an odd relationship. It was a relationship that was uh, nourished only by like four or five adult meetings during their lives and a few very pedestrian letters, but it was clearly important to them because both, uh, both of them found it very hard to break down the barriers around their personal status. George was honourable, dutiful, uh, but uh, above all, he was almost pathologically averse to any kind of change. It made him very, very anxious. Uh, it put him permanently on the side of reaction. In his own household, the one place where he could be an autocrat, he maintained the fashions and habits of the late Victorian era well into the 1930s. And his views were not very different from his two cousins, who were, of course, deeply conservative autocratic monarchs. He considered the socialists the devil, described the press as filth, thought strikes and peaceful picketing should be outlawed. Uh, the campaign for female suffrage revolted him. Lloyd George, uh, a great British politician, said, the king is hostile to the bone to all who are working to lift the work man, working man out of the mire. So is the queen. They talk exactly as the late king and Kaiser talked to me about the old railway strike. What do they want with striking? They're very well paid. The point about George, however, was that he didn't have any power. 
And while he would have liked to not have had to de dealt, for example, with the ghastly socialists, uh, whom his cousins managed not to encounter because they didn't want to throughout their whole reigns, the Constitution meant he had to. Nicholas, meanwhile, was, as a husband and father, far more committed and engaged, and engaged in his children and his wife than most men of his generation. But as far, he was a disaster. He was blinkered, unimaginative, and certain that the only way to rule Russia was to keep it as unchanged and undeveloped as possible. He was a disastrous czar, so suspicious of any minister who looked too successful that he would automatically suspect him of trying to make inroads on his own power and then work secretly to undermine him and eventually sack him. This, of course, was disastrous for a government that was already staggering along in the wake of hundreds of years of no reform. As I said, Queen Victoria had hated Russia, but in 1894, she changed her mind. By this time, Wilhelm had been Kaiser for about six years, and she was starting to feel a little exhausted and disappointed by his excesses and his unreliability. Uh, and she was seeing a Germany which was becoming palpably less and less friendly to Britain. Um, when it was announced that the young heir to the Russian throne was going to marry her favourite, granddaughter Alexandra of Hesse-Darmstadt, making him a sort of grandson-in-law, she began to think of what a friendly Russian czar might do for Britain. It wouldn't be a, there wouldn't, Russia wouldn't be a threat in Asia anymore. Uh, Russia might be able to reign in the French with whom they had a rather peculiar alliance, and maybe they'd be able to keep Germany in check. In this, she was backed by the Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury. And the other thing was that she was completely charmed by Nicholas when he came in 1993 for this wedding. One of those weird instances when the personal and the political were very much tied up again. She thought he was charming and told him to call her Granny. In his diary, he described her as a big round ball on wobbly legs. She was enormously spherical, as it has to be said. Her attitude towards uh, the Russian royals transformed in a moment. At Nicholas's coronation feast in uh, 1896, thousands died in a horrible stampede because one of Nicholas's uncles uh, has, was criminally neglectful in organising the event. Once... Queen Victoria would have denounced this as uh, typically Russian, uh, typically corrupt, typically brutal. Now she was worried about the effect on poor dear Nicky and Alecky, and she invited them to her freezing cold palace in Balmoral in Scotland. And here they are in 1896. Uh, the baby, I think, is the oldest daughter. I can't remember. There's Edward. There's Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria, who never looked... Uh, uh, into a camera and never smiled in front of civilians, i.e. non-royals. She thought it broke the mystique. Um, uh, so uh, so, uh, so he, uh, he, um, he invited, anyway, she invited him, they went, uh, and she hoped that this was going to cement relations, rather, in fact, as Wilhelm had hoped, personal relations would cement uh, relations. But in fact, Nicholas was very wary of mixing family and politics. And he was intensely nationalistic. So he wrote her a letter when she wrote to him after the event, saying, you know, how marvellous it was and perhaps we can be friends. Politics, alas, are not guided by personal feelings, he wrote. And he effectively rejected her overtures. The bit he'd like best was when he went shooting with George, who asked nothing of him. It would be over ten years before British attempts, including Victoria and Edward's own, to woo the Russians would bear some fruit in 1907. And even then, the Russian government only came to the table out of necessity. Uh, it was on its knees, nearly bankrupted after a disastrous war with Japan and the failed 1905 revolution. And it felt forced to make a treaty with Britain to keep its own frontiers safe. 
There was a weird period, though, between in the years before the 1907 treaty, when Nicholas remained friendly with the British relations, but at the same time he was deeply politically anti-British. Um, he secretly toyed, actually, over the years with several plans to disrupt the British in Asia, and during the Boer War, he encouraged the French to create trouble in Britain, for Britain and Africa, um, while he was writing to Granny, saying that he had no intention of exploiting Britain's weakness in Africa and Asia, whether or not, not nothing came of this, uh, because he'd actually made this promise to her, or because Russia was so bankrupt and couldn't do anything. I think even he couldn't have said. Wilhelm, meanwhile, gradually and insistently alienated both sets of cousins, when Nicholas came to the throne in 1895, he decided to use that famous charm and talent for diplomacy that he was so sure he possessed to mentor or rather to manipulate Nicholas. And for 12 years, he wrote him these excruciating letters, terribly, terribly condescending, appallingly cl uh, clumsy, which he, again, kept secret from even his most senior ministers. Um, each time, he tried to egg Nicholas on to attack uh, one of various European countries. The main thing he wanted to do was try and detach Russia from its ally, France, who was, of course, on the other side of Germany. Uh, he kept saying, you should attack the Japanese, or, or you should attack India, or you should attack the French, or the British. Um, One day, he wrote to Nicholas in 1895, my dearest Nicky, you will find yourself, Nolens Volens, suddenly embroiled in the most horrible of European wars which will, by the masses and by history, be fixed upon you as the cause of it. Think of the responsibility for that shocking bloodshed. Nicky, take my word on it. The curse of God has stricken that people, the French, that was, forever. Of course, that would be true, but it would be true of Wilhelm also. Tact and discretion, I have to say, were another of, of Wilhelm's not strong points. Gradually, everybody became, came to realize that he was talking behind their backs. And really, by the turn of the century, everybody knew. There's an extraordinary letter which Queen Victoria writes to Nicholas in 1899, in which she tells him that Wilhelm is trying to stir up her government against Russia over rivalry in Afghanistan. And Nicholas then writes another letter back saying, do you know what? He's doing exactly the same to us. Most of the time, Nicholas found these letters very tiresome, but there were moments when he was susceptible to Wilhelm. It was very lonely being Tsar. And Nicholas always felt very inadequate to the role though he'd never admit it. In fact, he basically regarded, uh, certainly not to a commoner, because he regarded everyone who wasn't royal as not worthy of attention, unless they were a long-serving servant of millions of generations. Wilhelm was one of the few people who knew what it was like to be at the top, so occasionally he would be susceptible to him. Um, on one occasion, in 1905, in the midst of the Japanese war and failed revolution, he stole off, this is Nicholas stole off to the Baltic in a yacht to sign a secret treaty with Wilhelm, who'd sent him a telegram through back passages, back corners. Nobody knew about it. Britain had been very critical of Russia's war with Japan. And in fact, uh, uh, Britain had made a, a defensive treaty with Japan. And Nicholas thought this was tremendously betraying and treacherous of the British. So when Wilhelm announced uh, that they should regard Edward and Britain as their shared enemy, he agreed and they arrived in the Baltic secretly on their two yachts, had dinner, and signed this, this uh, agreement. This was a very extraordinary thing to do, and also a kind of fantasy, a moment of uh, overexcitement from both men when they both got to feel for a moment that they were effectively the rulers they wanted to be. But when they got home, Nicholas's ministers made it clear that they thought the treaty was a disaster and they weren't going to honour it, uh, and that he'd been completely misled, misled by Wilhelm. 
In Germany, Bernard von Bülow was so angry about Wilhelm going off peace on his own uh, that even though the treaty was something that he wanted for years, he insisted it was a disaster and set, tore it up in front of Wilhelm to reprimand him. Well, by within about a couple of years, 1907, 1908, Wilhelm could hardly bear to be with Wilhelm. Nicholas could hardly bear to be with Wilhelm, and he signed this treaty with Britain. The British royals played no role in negotiating it, but they went out of their way to publicly support it. They met Nicholas on their yachts and had extravagant celebrations in the Baltic uh, and on the Isle of Wight. Here they all are in 1909 in their whites. Isn't it extraordinary to think of the Russian royal family in the Isle of Wight in 1909? By this point, family relations had come to mirror national ones, not simply because of William's bad character, it must be said, but because in the end, to the surprise of no one but perhaps a few royals, political and national demands were simply stronger than the claims of blood where the cousins tried to use the bonds of family to act against prevailing national feeling and policy, they failed. But what the emperors could do, sometimes quite dangerously, was to incarnate the character of a nation. Wilhelm's public persona, this heel-kicking, bombastic, dressed-up in crazy, Siegfried-type armour, uh, given to making public speeches in which he would go alarmingly off-piste, another Trump moment, I think, suddenly threatening to shoot socialists, to annihilate the Chinese, to take over Europe in a sudden land war, seemed to embody the more worrying tendencies of, the, of German, Germany itself, its military muscle and its angry, frustrated ambition. Incidentally, uh, William's crazy speeches, I do see them sort of as the equivalent of Trump's tweets were regarded as such a problem in Germany that the British government, the German government would hand out uh, copies of his speeches before he actually made them to the German press, who would obligingly publish them as was. But outside Germany, the foreign press would, would publish the speeches as they actually came out. So the whole of Europe was sitting there going... <laughs> uh, by the time George came to the throne in 1910, the relationship between the British and German royal houses had so cooled and the antipathy between the two countries was so stalemated that nothing as fragile as personal feelings could have dislodged it. And when George, Nicholas and Wilhelm met for the last time at the wedding of Wilhelm's daughter in uh, 1913 in Berlin, the meeting was a paradigm of the state of international relations. George and Nicholas tried to grab a private moment to talk while Wilhelm did his best to stop them, convinced that they were politicking actually there was nothing the two men less wanted to do. So what happened when war came? Well, you have to read my book. <laughs> Could any of them have stopped it? I'd say no. Was Wilhelm responsible for it? No. But he had done a series of things that certainly helped it along. He ignored for the whole of his reign the broad political landscape of German politics and only gave power to conservative, nationalistic, aristocratic ministers whose outlook was invariably deeply, deeply xenophobic. He, the other thing he did, of course, along with building up the navy, was he allowed, if not encouraged, the German army to become a kind of massively powerful, virtually autonomous institution within Germany itself. He loved the German army. He was notionally the head of it. Um, sorry. Um, incidentally, the German chiefs of staff laughed at him. It was said that, that among them that Wilhelm could not have led three soldiers over a, gr a gutter. The irony was uh, that when it came to it in 1914, I'll stop tapping that, sorry, almost alone among all his ministers, it was Wilhelm who didn't want the war, certainly not a war with Britain, and he kept trying to convince himself it was going to be all right uh, ever, as ever taking shelter among his fantasies. 
as Tsar Nicholas perceptively told the French ambassador. I can't believe the emperor wants war. If you knew him as I do, if you knew how much theatricality there is in his posing. And when it did break out, Wilhelm was as preoccupied with Britain as he ever had been. He scribbled over excitedly on a document. The dead Edward is stronger than I who am alive. What an extraordinary thing to say about a man who had been dead for 14 years. At the end of the war, arriving in Holland, where he would pass the next 23 years in exile, the first thing he asked for was a cup of good, hot, real English tea. I'm going to stop there because I'm worried I'm going to go over. How are we for time? Are we there? I'm so sorry I haven't left you time. I've yacked and yacked, but it's been a real pleasure talking to you. If you'd like to come and ask me anything afterwards, I'll be upstairs. I'm very happy to take questions. Thank you. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.